I got sober, uh, I was 22 years old. So this was drugs or alcohol or both? Uh, yes, all, all that stuff, yeah. Was <laughs> <laughs> anything I can get my hands on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I liked it all, yeah. And why did you decide to stop? You get panicked. You get panicked. It was, um, I was 22 and I got panicked for my life. It really was. It was just that. You know, I don't want to sound too dramatic and I don't want to make more out of it than it was, but I definitely was, whatever I was doing made me worry uh, if I was going to be able to do the things I wanted to do with my life. On the evening of February 1st, 2014, Philip Seymour Hoffman, the man many film critics have identified as the most talented actor of his generation, withdrew $1,200 in cash from a grocery store ATM and gave it to two men, who police suspect supplied him with a large quantity of heroin. Hoffman had battled addiction for many years and had openly discussed his struggles, but as he mentioned in the opening clip from a 60 Minutes interview several years earlier, he'd gotten clean in his early 20s and harnessed his tremendous talent into one of the most remarkably consistent runs in acting history, turning in memorable performances in a series of great films from the mid-90s through the early 2000s, including Boogie Nights, The Big Lebowski, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, Almost Famous, 25th Hour, Capote, and Charlie Wilson's War. But recently, Hoffman had appeared even more frayed than usual. Close friends thought he'd never been quite the same since playing Willie Loman in Mike Nichols' Broadway production of Death of a Salesman in 2012, which garnered him a third Tony nomination but also tortured him emotionally, requiring him to plumb the depths of his own depression and break down into tears on a nightly basis for the performance. It was during this run that Hoffman told a close friend that he'd been sober for so long, around 23 years at the time, that he felt he could begin drinking again, quote, in moderation. Around this time, a neighborhood friend in the West Village recalls Hoffman going to the Barrow Street Ale House and ordering one half of a beer, prompting the bartender to joke that a full beer was only three bucks and maybe he could splurge for the whole thing, before realizing this was Hoffman's way of trying to manage his addiction. But we all know that's not how addiction works. By the end of 2013, he had fully relapsed, prompting Mimi O'Donnell, Hoffman's partner and the mother of his three children, to move him out of the family home and into a nearby apartment. In late January the next year, he phoned a reporter from the set of the Hunger Games sequel who said he sounded incoherent, slurring his words, forgetting the names of people he'd worked with, and even intermittently nodding off. Photos surfaced of the actor drinking alone in bars. It appeared he was losing his battle. And so, on February 2nd, 2014, at around 11.30 a.m., a friend went to check on Hoffman after he failed to show up on time to pick up his children. Hoffman was found dead in the bathroom of his rented fourth-floor apartment with a syringe still inserted in his left arm. Scattered around the apartment were more than 50 envelopes of what appeared to be the heroin he'd purchased just hours earlier. He was just 46 years old. I'm Derek Kaufman. I'm Jason Beckerman. And this is Last Days, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Gaining a deeper understanding of the circumstances leading to Hoffman's death is a complicated and difficult task because the actor famously took great pains to maintain his privacy, a decision motivated by both personal and professional reasons. On a personal level, Hoffman was on the record that his family was off limits to the press, stating in 2012 that family doesn't have any choice. If you talk about them in the press, I'm giving them no choice, so I choose not to. 
On a professional level, Hoffman deeply believed that keeping a low profile in public afforded him the ability to take on a whole range of different roles, saying, the less you know about me, the more interesting it will be to watch me do what I do. And I think that there's a juxtaposition here, sort of a George Clooney versus a Daniel Day-Lewis, right? George Clooney, we know a lot about him, and he is in life, in real life, the same person he is on screen. You never lose sight of who George Clooney is. Daniel Day-Lewis, somebody who completely immerses himself in the role. We know very little about his personal life, and he's able to sort of recreate himself every time he's on screen. Let's say Clooney's not great. He is, but he's always George Clooney. He is. I don't want to diminish George Clooney or besmirch his acting ability, but there's always that smirk, that glint in his eye. Yeah. You know you're watching a movie star, right? When you watch George Clooney, he's not sinking into the role. And you're also seeing, watching him doing commercials with Randy Gerber. You, he's the exact same person, and that's been very successful for him. He's one of those successful Listen, you want to hang out with Danny Ocean. He's yeah, the coolest guy on earth but daniel day lewis becomes lincoln becomes the guy from my left foot i mean it's a very different immersive process and that's more hoffman-esque i think hoffman Hoffman would sink himself into those roles and you would see him he would pop up in movies and he would be a different person a different character in every movie and he was what made him great it really was he truly was incredible so all this is to say there's a bit of art to filling in the details of his life outside of the incredible filmography on his imdb profile And many of the details need to be pieced together into a coherent story. But here's what we know about his death. First, the medical examiner ruled that Hoffman died from an acute mixed drug intoxication, including heroin, cocaine, benzodiazepines, and amphetamine. The manner of death was determined to be accidental. Second, the investigators discovered prescription drugs and around 50 envelopes containing heroin and numerous empty plastic baggies in Hoffman's West Village apartment. And as noted, Hoffman was found with the syringe still sticking out of his left arm. He was wearing shorts and a T-shirt with glasses resting on his head, and there were no signs of any struggle. Importantly, none of the tests of the heroin found in the apartment contained fentanyl, which we know played a role in the deaths of Prince, which we discussed last week. Coolio, Mac Miller, and others, it's become sort of this scourge and this real public health crisis, but this is not a fentanyl-related death. This was just heroin bought off the street. Right, so we're painting a picture here of this apartment that he had. Remember, his his longtime partner and mother of his children had kicked him out of the house. He's living in this apartment, and it seems to have turned into a drug den. It's a very sad state of affairs, obviously. So four people, three men and one woman, were arrested in connection with the heroin found at the apartment within days of Hoffman's body being found. Investigators recovered 350 bags containing heroin after executing a search warrant for three different apartments in Lower Manhattan. The bags were branded, uh, one one's called Blacklist, another called Red Bull, which appeared to be different brands than the bags found in Hoffman's apartment. Yeah, these baggies tend to be stamped on the street to label the supplier or the particular dealer. They're just sort of a Red Bull or a a, a spade from a card suit. That's to identify who gave you the heroin. One of the people arrested was a 57-year-old jazz musician by the name of Robert Weinberg, who said he was a friend of Hoffman's but denied selling the heroin found at Hoffman's apartment. He was charged with felony criminal possession of a controlled substance. Two others, 22-year-old Juliana Lushku and 22-year-old Max Rosenblum, were each charged with misdemeanor criminal possession of a controlled substance. A fourth person was uh, arrested but never charged. Yeah, Jason, this is really the extent of the investigation. A very famous person dies in Manhattan. They're going to conduct an investigation. All they really had to go on was he had all these envelopes of heroin. So they tried to connect the heroin in his apartment to other heroin in the area of lower Manhattan. And they weren't really able to tie anyone to his death. So given this was the extent, basically, of the investigation to Philip Seymour Hoffman's death. So given this limited information available to uh, about this case, The best explanation for his death comes down to the fact that he was a heroin addict who had recently relapsed, 
and he suffered an accidental fatal it's overdose. It's more complicated than that. That's yeah. really it. Uh, there's something that you and I bring up a lot in conversation called Occam's Razor, and we're, we bring it up whenever an explanation's needed, but you've got very sparse facts, or maybe you've got very confusingly overwhelming set of facts. In essence, Occam's Razor is just a way of, of saying, uh, you're solving problems with the smallest possible set of elements. Put simply, this is the simplest explanation is often the correct explanation. So Hoffman's battle with addiction was well documented, and it seems his relapse in his mid-40s was just too much for his body to withstand. So in May 2013, less than a year before his death, the actor admitted to falling off of the wagon after nearly 23 years of sobriety. We talked about that first half of a beer that really might have uh, been the tipping point for him. And he was taking prescription drugs and snorting heroin. He immediately entered a detox facility after the announcement, but he only spent 10 days at the rehab. This clearly wasn't sufficient time to kick his dangerous habit, but he had professional commitments to a new Showtime pilot called Happyish and finishing the final two installments of The Hunger Games that demanded his attention. I want, I want to pause here for a second. This 10 days in rehab is just not enough. We're watching this kind of in real time with yeah. Bam Margera, where uh, Lamar Odom got him to go to that rehab facility, yeah. but he stayed only for a number of days to really detox and purge your body of this stuff and kick the habit. You need a longer time than well, that. What, what's indicative, and I have uh, addicts in my family, uh, what it's really indicative of somebody who is not fully committed to the cause. Because if you're going to stay there 10 days, you all, we all know you need months and months and months. And somebody who, with his means, and you know, he's got nobody who's going to tell him what to do, who leaves after 10 days, is not fully committing to it. Obviously, he had professional commitments, and he felt that he couldn't, he couldn't uh, and, and get out of like those. And it sounded like he thought he could manage it. And he thought he could manage it, right. We also know that around this time, he moved out of the family home into his own apartment in the West Village, what we talked about earlier. Earlier, presumably so that his three young children would not have to directly witness his addiction. But he wasn't an absentee father at all. Many locals in the West Village recalled seeing Hoffman with his younger son, Cooper, at Oliver's restaurant, talking and laughing for hours at a time. He also frequently attended Cooper's basketball practices at the Chelsea Piers. It was definitely not just a drop-off-and-leave kind of parent, according to others who saw him at the facility. The same people say he'd often return in the evening and could be seen hunched over the bar looking, quote, very dark and depressed. Others noted that he would often stumble into his apartment after late nights at the bar and needed help getting into his building. And just two weeks before his death in January 2014, Hoffman went to the Sundance Film Festival to promote his film, A Most Wanted Man. And during his time there, he met a magazine writer named John Arundel, and in a shockingly frank admission told him, I'm a heroin addict. I just got out of rehab. Arendelle recalled that it was a clear the actor wanted people to know that he was in recovery mode and he was trying to get this under control, but his time in Park City, Utah for the festival was rocky. He reportedly declined most interviews and even got into an altercation with a photographer on Main Street, which was really out of character for Philip. In retrospect, and given the proximity to his death just two weeks after this, it's clear that he was in the throes of addiction and really spiraling towards death at this, at this point in his life. Yeah, so the response to Hoffman's sudden death gives you a really good sense of how deeply respected he was in the acting community. A funeral mass was held at St. Ignatius Loyola Church in Manhattan on February 7th and was attended by the brightest and most talented members of the film, film community, including Kate Blanchett, Ethan Hawke, Laura Linney, Julianne Moore, director Mike Nichols, Joaquin Phoenix, Meryl Streep, Michelle Williams, and more. Michelle Williams obviously had lost her former husband, Heath Ledger, to an overdose several, several years earlier. Hoffman was cremated, and his remains and assets, reportedly around $35 million worth, were given to his longtime partner, Mimi O'Donnell, and the three children, Cooper, who was 10, Tallulah, who was 7, and Willa, who was 5. Kate Blanchett dedicated her BAFTA Acting Award to Hoffman later that year, 
And to give you a sense of his enduring legacy, Sam Rockwell dedicated his win for Best Supporting Actor in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri in 2017. Yeah, I mean, if you saw this funeral, it was like the greatest cast you've ever seen of a movie, yep. just an assemblage of the best and brightest talent that we have in the industry. And I really thought that that Sam dedicating his Oscar many years later to Philip Seymour Hoffman tells you that this guy was really important. He, he really was. And I mean, we don't have to go too much into it, you know, talking about our, our recollections. He was, I thought, one of the very best actors of his time. I thought his performance in Capote uh, was one of the great performances in movie history. I thought he was up there with Daniel Day-Lewis uh, in terms of the way he would just immerse himself in roles. A performance, uh, by the way, that could have slipped into parody very easily. Truman yeah. Capote had the, the the funny sort of accent. There was a another Truman Capote movie around the same yeah. time, but the Oscar went to Philip Seymour Hoffman because he just absolutely sunk into the role. Yeah. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including Ray-Ban, Good American, and Ulta. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals. During Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th, the cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for apparel and electronics, and you can save on everything you need for the summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Just go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. Rakuten, R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. So what made Hoffman such an important part of film history. I mean, we've got to sort of grapple with his legacy a bit. Uh, we've talked about people like Heath Ledger, who was sort of on the precipice of greatness when he passed. But Hoffman was truly a, a fully realized talent and undoubtedly had more to give in the future, but already had a body of work that was really commendable. I think this was primarily due to his range as an actor. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was always self-deprecating uh, about the sort of disheveled appearance and the soft physique. And he made a living uh, delivering nuanced portraits of what someone who looked like him, sort of a sad sack character, Toggling would behave in like. and out of comedy between comedy and drama. He played both. Obviously, Capoto was a very dramatic role, but then he'd add other roles. We talk, we'll talk about Along Came Polly and some others where he would play sort of almost the farcical comedic actor. And I thought he was fantastic in both roles. It was it was incredible because he wasn't sort of broad. He wasn't doing Chris Farley. Obviously, he was very nuanced about these portrayals. Uh, I remember him most from uh, from Boogie Nights, where he was yep. Scotty J. Um, and it was really sort of tender performance uh, in an otherwise sort of like heightened farcical yep. movie in a lot of ways. And he had comedic roles like Sandy Lyle and Along Came Polly, which we'll talk about, where he... the, the 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 um the material's kind of mediocre. Let's be honest. It's a Ben Stiller movie. It's sort of a straight man no, against. You're pooping on a long came Polly. Huh? I love it. I have a soft spot, but I really have a soft spot because of Philip Seymour Hoffman. He just steals every scene he's in, and knew how to play perfectly against that Ben Stiller straight man, which was so dominant in the early 2000s. She looks good. Let it ride. So I did a lot of thinking last night, and there's something I'm pretty excited about. What's up? Nice. Let it rain! Well, I feel like I might be ready to move on. You know, get my life back on track. So, I'm going to ask Polly Prince on a date. Oh, that's a mistake. She's not right for you, dude. Rain dance! 
I still I still giggle at it because you can't play a, a game of pickup basketball in L.A. or really anywhere without somebody imitating this right. this scene where he's just saying, you know, Iceman, like he's Gervin, <laughs> and none of the shots go in. I mean, you can't hear it on the podcast, but they're all just hitting the backboard and, and not going in. In any event, um, he was equally adept at inhabiting characters as diverse as Truman Capote, which you mentioned, which was the role that garnered him the Academy Award, and broken people like Andy Hansen in Sidney Lumet's Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Here he is as Truman Capote in the award-winning performance, charming some dinner guests, and absolutely nailing that trademark inflection and speaking style of the legendary author. And he said, I feel like you're spiting me. Do you think I took this job to spite you? (laughs) I was writing the script as they were filming all that time in Italy, and I, I worked like mad all day long and then dashed down to the bar around midnight to end in the next day's scenes. And Humphrey had, had, had just about moved into the hotel bar. Humphrey Bogart. Where he and John. John Houston. Had, uh, <laughs> they drank every night. And I mean drank, you know, like famished water buffaloes. And this isn't just puffed up praise because he passed away too soon. There's a, there's a tendency to uh, laud the dead, regardless of the quality of the performance. But as you said at the top, he's one of the most lauded and respected actors in, in history. Cameron Crowe, who directed him in Almost Famous, said, quote, he was the greatest of his generation and more. He was an actor's actor. Sidney Lumet even compared him to Marlon Brando, which Hoffman, in typical fashion, scoffed at. Even the greats, Brando, De Niro, Pacino, lapsed into self-parody at some point, but Hoffman continued to challenge himself, and the esteem of his peers and fans only seemed to grow over time. But roiling beneath the surface and and possibly contributing even to these incredible performances was an ocean of self-doubt and dark thoughts. When he was praised for his work after Capote in 2005, Hoffman said he would thank people for the compliment, but deep down felt they were unmerited. He was relentlessly self-critical about his obvious incredible performances and deeply doubtful of his tremendous talent. Matthew Warkus, who directed Hoffman in a Tony-nominated performance in a show called True West, said, quote, I think the tortured part comes from him not settling. The audience benefits and the artist himself. It's a mixed blessing to have those standards. Nothing is easy. He also really didn't relish the nightlife or the parties, which we often think of when we think of an actor or Hollywood type passes away from a drug overdose. He was just an addict. His longtime friend and playwright, Andy Gerges, insisted his friend didn't romanticize life on the edge or anything like that, saying, quote, he believed you don't have to die with a needle in your arm to be a great artist. By all accounts, he was not interested in Hollywood parties, but an actor who brought a rare intensity to his performances. Gerges would say Hoffman, quote, unsparing of himself, and he clearly paid a price for it. So this is not to say that Philip Seymour Hoffman was a humorless guy. Far from it. Um, his friends from earlier in life, before he was a famous actor, remember him as a jock from Rochester. Um, who loved playing wiffle ball and wrestling with friends. He was a child of divorce. Father worked for Xerox. His mother was a judge. He actually wrestled uh, pretty successfully until suffering a neck injury in high school, which forced him to rethink his goals and led him to pursuing theater. So he ends up going to NYU. He graduates in 1989 with a BFA in drama. And it was at college where he started to get into drinking and taking drugs and sort of soaking up life in that way. His big break came with a small role in 1992, Scent of a Woman, with Al Pacino, and the world could immediately see that he'd be a force to be reckoned with on the screen. He was sort of the tormented asshole character. That's who he played. And here he is reluctantly serving as a witness in a school disciplinary hearing about a prank involving some students. All right, now don't hold me to this, but uh, no contacts. It's dark. 
And everything, I mean... Mr. Willis! Maybe... Harry Havemeyer, Trent Potter, and Jimmy Jameson. I wanted to pause on this for a second before we go on. This movie, he just bursts onto the scene. He's clearly a tremendous actor in, you know, these prep school movies from the 90s. You can, you know, school ties, things like that. He's going toe-to-toe with Pacino in this role. He's going toe-to-toe with Al Pacino, who by this point, I've talked about them lapsing into self-parody. I don't mean to sort of demean Al Pacino, but it's this stage in his career where you get the hoo That's the Al Pacino that starts to come into focus in Scent of a Woman. And it's acting. I mean, it's definitely a performance, but when you watch Philip Seymour Hoffman in his fir- one of his early movies against Al Pacino in his later stages, you really get a sense of they're, they're kind of doing acting differently at this point. So he has his big break in Scent of a Woman. Uh, his career then really takes off in the mid-90s when he turns in performances in P.T. Anderson's Boogie Nights we talked about, Todd Saldanas's Happiness and the Coen Brothers' Big Lebowski. From there, he continues the run with Magnolia and the talented Mr. Ripley, where he plays an incredible character. And then he plays Lester Bangs in Almost Famous and continues to churn through projects. The true testament to his greatness was Hoffman's ability to elevate kind of mediocre material, as he did. Uh, you know, we talked about Red, uh, Long Came Polly and Red Dragons. Even in big-budget thrillers like Mission Impossible 2, opposite Tom Cruise, Hoffman was always a reliable presence on screen taking the hokey arch dialogue in these sorts of movies and making it credible without losing the fun ridiculousness of the plot. So you have a, a wife, girlfriend? It's up to you how this goes. Because you know what I'm going to do next? I'm going to find her. Whoever she is, I'm going to find her and I'm going to hurt her. I put that in there for you because I know you like Mission Impossible 2. And I, I like it. You know, the, the funny thing is that might be my least favorite of all the movies of the series, but he's might be the best villain as he well. is yeah. he just chews it up and this guy did comedy did like sad sack and here he is as an arch villain he could do it all and really right up until his death he didn't give any indication that he was slowing down or losing his edge in any way aside from his role in the wildly successful hunger games trilogy he turned in one of his greatest performances very late in his career with the master in 2012 playing a character named lancaster dodd who's loosely based on scientology founder l ron hubbard didn't go Go to that landless latitude, and good luck. For if you figure a way to live without serving a master, any master, then let the rest of us know, will you? You know, he loved working with P.T. Anderson, and this was their, their their last project together. And his generosity as an actor is on full display. There were reports that he encouraged the movie to be structured around Joaquin Phoenix's character, who's the guy who is following Lancaster Dodd, uh, which lends the movie a more dramatic complexity and keeps it from becoming a more traditional biopic. But really, he's the L. Ron Hubbard. The movie could have been structured around him. And he said the better film, the more interesting film would be to do it around Joaquin. There is no doubt, really, Derek, in my mind, that movies have suffered, that we've lost something big with the loss of Philip Seymour Hoffman, and it's abundantly clear that many of his most frequent collaborators are still searching for a way to fill the void. P.T. Anderson's movie, Licorice Pizza, I don't know if you saw it. I did. It was sort of an homage, to, in a way, to, to uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He actually uh, cast his son Cooper in the lead role. You can see flashes of Philip in the performance, but if you're being totally honest, the movie feels slight and somewhat incomplete without the elder Hoffman. It's a fun teen romp in many ways, so I don't think it's fair to compare it with earlier weighty works like Boogie Nights or Magnolia. 
Still, the breakout performances belong to Bradley Cooper, who chews up the scenery as a young John Peters. And it's hard not to think about what Hoffman could have added to the movie as a colorful character from the 70s. So we're in the counterfactual section, and, and I, I sort of wonder what would have become of Philip Seymour Hoffman. He dies in 2014, so he's been, uh, you know, he passed away for now 10 years. So I do wonder if he might have dipped his toe in prestige television or perhaps even pivoted to Broadway as one of his true loves was stage acting. And I feel like if we're finding a person who he's most similar to, who has sort of filled that void in some way, I'd say the best comparison is Jesse Plemons, who some people know as Bizarro, Matt Damon from his look. He sort of physically resembles Hoffman, has lighter hair. He sort of slips into roles, gets really immersed. He does weighty dramas. He was in Power of the Dog, Judas and the Black Messiah, Bridge of Spies, and the upcoming Scorsese flick, Killers of the Flower Moon. But he's not fussy or pretentious and is willing to star in comedies like Game Night or even Observe and Report, which was also a trademark of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And he's nimble enough to dip his toe in the television world. And he has a prestige miniseries that came out recently called uh, Love and Death with Elizabeth Olsen. So he really does it all. And he's always sort of value added to a project, even if he's not in the starring role. And that really was what Philip Seymour Hoffman was all about. So most people would say the best way to remember Philip Seymour Hoffman is through the enduring legacy of his films. But I think the truest testament to his greatness comes from the respect he garnered from his peers. And nobody is spoken about more reverentially by fellow actors than Philip Seymour Hoffman. And so I thought it fitting to give the final word to Ethan Hawke, who described to Charlie Rose what Hoffman and Robin Williams, who also passed away in 2014, meant to him and the burdens they bore along the way in their life. Two of the great talents of my life, two of the biggest influences on me, Robin Williams and, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, both passed away last year, right? I mean, these are very, very serious artists. And um, they're not celebrities, to me, you know, Philip was the first one of my generation to be a fully actualized actor artist. You know, he, he had something to say with his work, with his theater company, with the choices he made, with the way he carried himself in the world. You know, he was a very serious person. Robin, too. Depression is a real demon in the woods, too, of a lot of creative people, you know, and um, it's it's part of what the documentary is trying to be about for me, is finding balance, you know, where the beauty that is attainable in the creative arts can be matched with the scratchy roughness of regular life. Mm -hmm. 